Uh, If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Last week we started chapter 14. We went through the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 14. And if, if you remember... Jesus has made some devastating revelations to his disciples as they have been in the upper room. Uh, Some really, really bad news for the disciples. He has told them that he is going to leave them and that they will not be able to follow. He has told them that one of them is a traitor. He's told Peter that he's going to disown him. And then he said, all of you will leave me. So (laughs) this is some pretty devastating information coming the disciples way. And so what Jesus has been doing here in chapter 14 is seeking to comfort them. And last week, we we looked at the promise of comfort from the God of all comfort and the specific ways in which that comfort comes to them. And we focused on, at least back in verse 1, that Jesus was trying to get them to understand that they could trust in his abiding presence in the same way that they trust in the abiding presence of the Father, they could trust in his presence. We looked at um, another source of comfort, the fact that Jesus is going away to prepare a place for them, right? And he would come back and take them to be with him. We looked at the source of comfort of his proclamation about, I am the way. Pretty comforting to know that you know the only way to God, isn't it? He comforted them by declaring his person. He is in the Father and the Father is in him declaring his power, that they would actually have this power to do greater works than even Jesus on earth. And we talked about what that meant, works in extent. The gospel would go to the ends of the world. And also his promise to answer prayer. Some pretty comforting words Jesus gave them. And so what Jesus is continuing to do here is to encourage his disciples by elaborating on another benefit of his going away, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, I closed the service by reminding us of what uh, John said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, verse 38, and I have it up here for you. He said, Jesus speaks in verse 38, and then John tells us what it means in verse 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The giving of the Holy Spirit has not yet happened because Jesus has not yet been glorified. We talked about the glorification, meaning the cross and beyond, his resurrection and eventual ascension back to the Father. And his glorification is imminent because Judas, the traitor that was in their midst, has left the upper room, is on his way to betray him at that moment. And so Jesus is speaking as if his glorification is at hand. In fact, back in verse 31 of chapter 13, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified. So the betrayal is about to happen. Jesus's fate on the cross is sealed. But from The author's perspective, John's perspective, the cross isn't a bad thing because it's going to lead to his glorification. He's looking beyond it. And so what Jesus is going to do here is going to focus the bulk of his teaching to his disciples on on preparing the disciples for life in his absence. He's going away. And for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Before we launch into this, I have to ask, what are we talking about when we speak of the Holy Spirit? I did my whole study, and then I had to go back and, and say to myself, I can't assume everybody knows what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. If you have a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit, this passage will really be confusing to you. And so I decided to go back and take some time to present to you the biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit. What do we believe when we speak of the Holy Spirit? So firstly, we believe the Holy Spirit is deity. That when I say the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking of the third person of the triune God. You've heard the word Trinity before, right? It's not in the Bible. It's a word theologians have made up to describe the triune God of the Bible because Trinity just means triunity or three in oneness. We speak of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. You have each person is God, fully God, yet we don't have three gods. We have one God, not three. One divine essence with three distinct persons. And when we look at the Holy Spirit and what the Bible says about him, it helps us to understand the Trinity. So I want to do that today just by going through some passages of Scripture. I'm going to go through them rather quickly, so if you're taking notes... Sorry, <laughs> right now, just going to tell you right now, because I'm just going to go through uh, passages to set this up. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of God in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus is baptized, Matthew writes this, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. So you have the Spirit of God, um, being referred to as the Holy Spirit. You also have the Holy Spirit being referred to as the Spirit of Jesus in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Also in Philippians 1.19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So you see that. You have the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And we as believers are called to baptize believers, right? And not only are we called to baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son, but also in the name of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? In Matthew 28, 19, we're told to do that. And so we're, we're told to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, meaning the, the, the equal, right? The Holy Spirit's name is given there as a name in which we must baptize believers, so a couple of things about the Holy Spirit. He possesses divine attributes, meaning uh, attributes that only God has. We see the Holy Spirit uh, has omniscience, means all-knowing power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul writes, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. The Spirit searches those things. Only God can understand. He has omniscience, all-knowing power. Also, he's omnipresent. We were reading this passage in our prayer meeting this morning. It's Psalm 139, verse 7. David writes, Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. Nowhere, right? You can't flee from the Spirit. He's omnipresent everywhere. Also, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Job, in chapter 33, verse 4, says, The Spirit of God has made me. But then he says, And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So here we have the idea that the Holy Spirit can do things only God can do, like 
create. But he also can do things only God can do, like inspire scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus will actually talk about this in this chapter today, that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, his teaching ability. The Holy Spirit can regenerate lost sinners, of which the Gospel of John has touched on as well. In Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can sanctify believers. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, there are more things we could look up. I just wanted to give you some of those, but probably one of the most convincing ones is the fact that the Holy Spirit is called God. (laughs) In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in verse 3, he's lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, they lied to to, to God, right? So he equates the Holy Spirit with God. Now, beyond this, these are just sort of things that attribute the Holy Spirit as, as deity. The Holy Spirit also has personhood because there are Um, the people who believe the Holy Spirit is just some sort of impersonal force, or maybe it's just the power of of God in you. Yet we see the Bible teaches on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He has attributes of a person. He has intellect. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the spirit of God can know things. He has intellect. The Spirit of God has emotion because you can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has a will like a person does. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The gifts given to you are given to you by the will of the Spirit. And because of that, he can do things only a person can do as well. That's why you see him speaking in Acts chapter 8, verse 29. He says to uh, Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Remember that? The Spirit says that to (laughs) Philip. In Romans 8, 16, he can testify or bear witness. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit can lead you and direct you. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He can intercede for you. Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he can teach for us, and we'll see this in our passage today. The New Testament also refers to the Holy Spirit using the masculine pronoun he and not it. So hopefully, this just gives you a right understanding of the Holy Spirit and where I'm coming from so we can properly understand Jesus' teaching today. Now, as we get to John's gospel, you also have to understand that John fills in some gaps for us on the teaching of the Holy Spirit. If you only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the teaching of the Holy Spirit is rather limited. In fact, the references to the Holy Spirit are almost exclusively in reference to Jesus' earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb. 
right? When you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And two verses later, the angel goes to Joseph and tells him not to be afraid. Why? Because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, right? So we see the Holy Spirit active there, but in the conception of Jesus in the womb. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus after that at his baptism. We read a verse about that already, but in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then two verses later, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted uh, by Satan. And Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel record the same things in chapters 3 and 4 as well. The Holy Spirit was upon Jesus to empower him for, for ministry. You might remember Luke records a Sabbath where Jesus was in Nazareth and he was teaching in the synagogue. And he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Luke records it in chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah and says, the Lord's upon me. And then he closes the book. And do you remember what he says after that? Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This, this is me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Matthew records a similar thing in, in quoting Isaiah 42, 1. Other than that, you have a few random teachings on the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Mark 3 and Luke 12. And you also have Luke making a brief reference to God giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask him in Luke eleven thirteen, And then Jesus promises his followers that the Holy Spirit will speak for them in times of persecution in Mark 13 and Luke 12. But that's about, about it. That's about rounds up the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And John's gospel really hasn't been that much different up to this point. If you think about what John has talked about in relation to the Holy Spirit, it's been very similar, maybe with the exception of a couple of things. John's gospel um, stressed the role of the Holy Spirit in regeneration when he recorded those private words between Jesus and Nicodemus. Do you remember that? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, this is in John chapter 3, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So John emphasized uh, that role, that regenerating or rebirth, new birth that comes by the Holy Spirit. He also emphasized the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit when he spoke to the crowds of followers who began to turn away from Jesus and follow him no more. And that was in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So, that rounds up the teaching there that we've received thus far. But there's one important section that is in all four Gospels, including John's Gospel, that I want to point to today. We've already read it. It's in John chapter 1. So if you turn back to John chapter 1, these are the words of John the Baptist, a different John than the author. So don't get that confused, okay? John the disciple, the author, is recording the words of John the Baptist in chapter 1. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, 
the fact that Jesus is referred to as the one that baptizes the Holy Spirit, that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And John seems to refer to that as a transcending work, a higher work of the Spirit than even the Spirit's role in Jesus' own ministry. The point is this, that the baptizing of the Holy Spirit that's spoken of there way back in chapter 1 is what Jesus is going to begin to teach on here. Okay, that's what I'm trying to connect you to. And what we're going to receive, a lot of this information is new. If you had read the other Gospels, it's limited. And so without John chapter 14, 15, 16, we would actually have a very limited view of the role of the Holy Spirit. And that's primarily what we're going to talk about today, the role of the Holy Spirit. We won't so much get into the works of the Holy Spirit until chapter 16. So let's look at our passage and read it today. It was a long intro, I know. But we're going to read John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31. 15 to 31. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for John chapter 14. We thank you for the record of Jesus' words here preserved for us today, that we might have a greater understanding of the marvelous mystery and work of the Holy Spirit. And God, we recognize that we need your spirit to understand these truths. And so God, just uh, help, your, help, you, help us to, by your spirit, to understand these things. Open up our hearts. Illuminate this truth to us today that we might better walk with you in a way that honors you and glorifies your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's launch right into this. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, firstly, the Holy Spirit is not given to uh, everyone. I've heard movie stars that I would maybe myself question uh, where they stand with Christ, talk about the Holy Spirit, 
as it some kind of fun force power to play with. Um, but the Holy Spirit's not given to everyone. It's given to those who love Christ. And Jesus is reiterating that here. If you love me, keep my commandments. And we discussed this a few weeks ago, uh, but Jesus has set the pattern for love and the pattern for obedience. And his disciples are expected to follow. And true love for Christ is revealed in obedience, isn't it? That's what he said earlier when he told them to love one another. And so you must have uh, love for Christ, and that is shown through obedience to his command. And to, to those who demonstrate true, true love and those who are, um, show their allegiance to Christ, Jesus promises you the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he gives us in verses 16 to 17. Look what he says. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now here the Holy Spirit is introduced to us as, as two things, another helper and the Spirit of truth. Let's look at one of um, each of those individually. Helper is parakletos. And it's a very difficult word to translate in English because there's not an English equivalent. So some of your Bibles might say helper, or maybe you have comforter or counselor or advocate, something along those lines. Encourager sometimes is uh, used there. But what we need to know is what is Jesus's meaning here? What is Jesus trying to get across to them here? Now, remember back at the beginning of this chapter, verse one, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, trust in God, trust also in me, meaning trust in God's abiding presence and trust in my abiding presence in the same way as you trust in God's presence. The Old Testament believers did that. Psalm 23, David writes, uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now, God wasn't physically, visibly with him, but he understood his presence, didn't he? Well, Jesus is telling him to to believe and trust in his presence in the same way he trusts in the presence of the Father. That was back in in verse 1. And that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at here. Um, He's referring to his abiding presence. And so I think while uh, advocate is a good word because it certainly has that legal aspect of things, that Jesus is our, our advocate or counselor or even comforter, I think what Jesus is really getting at is the helping presence. Because remember, he's leaving them. He's not going to be visibly, physically present. But his helping presence will be there. And we're not going to get into the teaching of the work of the Spirit. Like I said, we'll get to that later in chapter 16. What Jesus wants his disciples to know right now is that while he is leaving them visibly, his presence will remain with them. And notice he calls him another helper. Another player, parakletos, another is an interesting word. It's alas, and it means another of the same kind. Uh, It's used in Matthew 13. You have Jesus telling a parable, and then it says, and then he told another parable. And then he told another parable. And then he told another parable. Another, alas, is used because each of those parables is a parable about the nature of the kingdom of God. It's another parable of the same kind. But in the Greek, there does exist a word for another, that can mean another of a different kind. It's heteros. And Stephen uses it in Acts chapter 7 when he's recounting the history of Israel. And he gets to the part about Joseph and the children of, of Israel in Egypt. 
And he says, another king arose who did not know Joseph. Another of a different kind, heteros is used, because it was a different pharaoh from a different dynasty who had a very different attitude towards Joseph and the children of Israel. He enslaved them, right? Paul uses the same word when he rebukes the Galatians for following another gospel, heteros, because they were following not another of the same kind, another of a different kind, which means it was a false gospel. But what's used here in our passage is alas. It's another of a same kind. Why is that important? Because the Spirit's presence with the disciples will replace the presence of Jesus with them while on earth. And so he's another presence of the same kind. And that's the Spirit's primary role. If you were to ask me, what's the primary role of the Spirit? He's a substitute presence. I will tell you what those disciples cared about right then and there was the fact that Jesus was leaving them. And he is there to comfort saying, I'm not leaving you. I will not leave you orphans. We're getting to that. I will be with you. We like to focus on all the other things of the Spirit, but this is the primary role. His abiding presence is with you. That's what Jesus wants them to know. And not just with you temporarily. What does it say? He may abide with you forever. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is with you forever. Now notice Jesus calls him something else in verse 17. He's called the spirit of truth. Now, I think that refers to um, another ministry, key ministry of the Holy Spirit, probably the second key ministry. That's to reveal spiritual truth. You hear me up here pray all the time, right? Lord, help the, you know, have the Holy Spirit reveal truth to us, illuminate scripture to us, because that's a, a role of the Holy Spirit, to reveal truth. He's the spirit of truth. If you just peek ahead to John chapter 15, verse 26, both helper and spirit of truth are used in this verse. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The spirit's role is to reveal spiritual truth about who Jesus is. And he will do that in the lives of the disciples. He'll do that in your life as well. In John chapter 16, look at verse 13, just a little preview as well. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So we'll touch more on this in verse 26, but I want you to notice that's the key role. He's the spirit of truth to reveal truth to believers, but to unbelievers that cannot happen. Look what he says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And that's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. I have this verse for you. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. All right? If the Spirit's role is to make Jesus' presence, um, uh, you know, uh, manifest his presence in your life, certainly you must know Jesus, Right? If the Spirit's role is the real spiritual truth to you, you must certainly want to accept the spiritual truth. But the natural man rejects those things. So he cannot know him. He cannot know, and so he cannot receive. But for believers, he says, but you do know him. You do know him, and he dwells with you and will be in you. So knowing him and seeing him are prerequisites. You've got to know him. You've got to see him. And if you know him, he dwells with you. He'll be in you. I think that's important. Isn't it true 
that you really, really get to know someone when you live with them. Now, if you got engaged and did the marriage the right way and you didn't live with your spouse beforehand, right? Like that part can be a very learning experience, right? You really get to know your partner, right? Are they, are they tidy? Are they messy? Are they cranky in the morning, right? Before they get their coffee? Or, don't de- I don't want to see no elbows, right? But you really get to know someone when you dwell with them. But if the Holy Spirit's dwelling with you and in you, you should know him pretty well, shouldn't you? But that's, that's what he says. You know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, he says will be because you do need to make this distinction. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit temporarily came upon people to empower them for certain ministries and certain times. But in the New Testament, um, at, at Pentecost, which hasn't happened yet in, in John's gospel, it will happen, right? After Jesus has uh, risen and ascended, you will have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be in you. And that is the normative for Christians today. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you, you receive the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says he will be in you because he hasn't been indwelt them yet because, well, Jesus is there, isn't he? You don't need a, another helping presence when you have the presence of Jesus there. But when Jesus leaves, they're going to need another helping presence. So you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. That's the idea. Biting presence, constant help, because he, he lives in you. At the same time, and this is where it really gets interesting, Jesus tells us that he himself is with us. So you have the presence of the Spirit manifesting the presence of the Son. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I think this is the key of the passage. I will not leave you orphans. Jesus is not intending to leave them fatherless. He's not intending to leave them without a protector, without a provider, without someone to lead, without someone to direct. I'm not going to leave you orphans. And notice what he says, I will come to you. Now, again, this is why I set up everything I did at the beginning. This would be a very confusing passage if you didn't understand, A, the Trinity, and didn't believe in that, and you didn't understand the Holy Spirit as a person of God in the Trinity, as deity, you, you couldn't understand this, but this is what we're getting at here. Um, Jesus is speaking about the union with the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. Jesus will abide with them through the Holy Spirit. Now, we say this in our own ways. We just don't understand it. We always say, uh, oh, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You've heard that, right? Yes, Jesus into your heart. But if you ask any semi-mature Christian, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I have the Holy Spirit in me, Right? Well, you're saying the, the same thing, right? You have the Holy Spirit in you, but the Holy Spirit manifests the presence of Jesus in you. So you have Jesus in you. That's the, that's the idea. Now look at verse 19. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And it will be only a few hours longer before the world will see Jesus no more because it's only a few hours till the cross. But the disciples will see him after his resurrection. You, you will see me, he says. And because they're going to see him after Jesus is resurrected, notice he says, because I live, you will live also. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, the disciples have proof that they will one day be raised as well. That's what Paul jumps onto in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
Now, I think that's a plain reading, a plain understanding, but I think Jesus means more. I think the, the point of this passage is about the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and them having, well, having what Jesus already promised earlier in John, life and life abundantly. Didn't Jesus say that? He was talking about being the door and the good shepherd. He said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I see a lot of Christians not having life abundant. What does it mean by having life abundantly? Well, I think this. I think the idea is what we see in Hebrews 13. Look at this verse, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, get this, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my, what? Helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews ties in the thought that Jesus will never leave us, that we're not orphans, that he is our helper, with the idea of be content. Don't covet. You have everything you need is the idea, isn't it? Understanding the abiding presence of Jesus should be an overwhelming uh, sense, give you an overwhelming sense of comfort and the idea that you have everything you need. Can you really have an abundant life when you live with coveting things you don't have? When you live with discontentment? I don't think so. And so I think what he's getting out here is that you will truly live. Yes, they'll live one day in eternity, but also while you live on this earth, you're going to really understand what living is like. You're going to have an abundant life, the life I promise of abundance, because you have me. You have the Holy Spirit. But he goes on. Look what he says in verse 20. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, that looks like a confusing little verse, but let's look at this. At that day, what day? Well, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. That's the whole idea of the passage here, the point of what he's talking about. And what will they know at that day? They'll know for a fact the truth of what Jesus has been claiming all along. I am in my Father. Back in verse 7 of this chapter, he said that, didn't he? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. But Jesus is telling them, you, you haven't known me, you haven't seen me, you don't, you don't understand this now, but you, you do now. Meaning, meaning when the Holy Spirit comes. Because remember, Jesus is speaking in terms as if all this is happening the next day. He's, he's seeing glorification as the very next step here. So the Holy Spirit's coming to you. Now you're going to see him. Now you're going to know him. Now you're finally going to believe what I've been talking about. I am in my Father. And that's just another reference to the mysterious truth of the Trinity. How is Jesus in the Father? Well, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Jesus in that way, right? Well, Jesus is part of the triune God. He is with the Father, right? And we can't understand this. So what writers do in the New Testament, they try to get us metaphors, right? We have all these different metaphors so we can understand it. One of them is the vine and the branches. Guess where that is? The very next chapter. Jesus is going to talk about it. I am the vine, he's going to say, and you are the branches. Let me explain this to you in a way you can understand, because as you talk about mysteries like this, it's very hard for our minds to understand. So we're given biblical metaphors, and we'll learn about that next week, the vine and the branches. But another one we're given um, is the idea that we are stones of a spiritual house, but Jesus is the cornerstone. How about this? We're a body, and Jesus is the head, right? We're given these things. We could give these to kids, right? (laughs) But we're, giving, we're adults, we're giving these things because we have to understand how these things work. They're mysterious to us. But then we're given passages like this to help us understand the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verses 15 to 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul's point here is the unity that we have in Christ, right? If you go commit adultery, just as you are one with your wife, you're now one with that person. And guess who else you've taken into that relationship? Christ, because you're one with him. And here's what the Bible teaches about that, because he, he says here that I am in my father and you are in me, right? And I am in, in you. So we are in Christ. What do we get because we're in Christ? Here's what we get. No condemnation. No condemnation. 8.1, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? <laughs> because you're in Christ Jesus, you won't be condemned. That's not a negative. What else are you? You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because you are in him, you have no condemnation, and you have been recreated to something brand new. But also, he is in us. That's us in him. He is in us. What does scripture say about he being in us? Well, Romans 8.10 says that we are alive through the spirit because he's in us. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. You have the life of Christ in you and his righteousness as well, right? So you have real life. Also, because he's in us, Christ lives through us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? So those are the things you have because of this, this amazing uh, unity. All those benefits come to us because he is in the Father. He is in the Father, and he is in me, and I am in him. It's an amazing thing. Now, get this, because Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus, then we also have the presence of who? The Father. Is your mind blown, right? You have the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in you. And that's what he's getting at in verses 21 and on here. Look at this. He who has command, my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the second time in this passage that Jesus emphasizes only those who obey his commands enter into this amazing union with him. If you're not obedient to his commands, you, you don't have this. This is a mystery. You can't understand this. Now, keep in mind, obedience is not the cause of salvation, right? It's not the cause of it. I'm not saying be obedient and earn salvation. It's the evidence of salvation because by the deeds of the flesh, no one will be justified, Scripture says. Obedience is a result of your salvation. And obedience to his commands expresses the love uh, that we should have for uh, Christ. Therefore, one who loves Christ will be loved by my Father as well, is what uh, Jesus says here. Remember back in John chapter 5, he said that all should honor the Son um, and they should honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. That's the same kind of idea here. You can't profess love uh, for God without love for Christ. But in contrast, obedience to Christ expresses love for him, which brings about the love of the Father and the love of the Son. And this results in this manifesting or revealing himself to us. I will love him and manifest myself to him, he says. How? How will he do that? Well, guess what? You're not the only one to ask that. Judas asks that. Look at what he says in verse 22. Now, this is Judas, not Iscariot. Thank you, John, for pointing that out. 
You would be confused if you saw Judas. Judas left the building. He's not here. This is Judas Thaddeus or, or Labius. He's another one of the disciples. This is not Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas asks the question we're all asking. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's a weird question, the way he says it. What's he thinking of here? He's thinking of Jesus' return and setting up his earthly kingdom, right? How are you going to do that and just show yourself to us, but not the whole world? How are they going to miss that? Well, they're missing the whole thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. How does Jesus explain it? Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, goes back to the love again, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. (laughs) Jesus and the father will not come to those who are disobedient to his commands, but only to the obedient, only to real believers who truly love the Lord. And notice what he says, we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the triune dwelling of God. And you should note that the word home here is the same word used in verse 2 for mansions, right? In my father's house are many mansions. It means dwelling places. It's, um, the point here is obedience to Christ means dwelling with God. Not just in the future, but in the present. My question is, do you live as if you're dwelling with God? That is a profound thing. But don't you read the, the, the Acts of the Apostles and you see you see that in their lives, don't you? They have no fear, all right? They're bold. They, they pray boldly. They speak boldly. They have no fear because they know the presence of God, the triune God. They, they have all of it there. We miss out on this, honestly. I think we do. This is what Jesus is getting at. I want you to know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... <laughs> are going to be dwelling with you. You just remain obedient to me. Carry out my commands, and you're going to see it. We're going to come and dwell with you. Could there be more encouraging words? I'm going to go leave you, but here's what's going to happen when I leave. We're all coming in, (laughs) all right? That's pretty amazing. Incredible. And Jesus reiterates the truth, but he does it in a negative way in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my word. So, right, right? If you don't obey his words, you don't obey God's commands, you don't show love. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the, the, the Father's who sent me. The commands of the Father. That's what he's talking about. Now, in verse 25, Jesus is getting kind of to the, the, the whole point here. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. That's, that's a no-brainer. Yes, I see that, right? I see that you've spoken these things to us while you're present. But why does Jesus say that? He's saying these things to them because they're going to have difficulty grasping all these truths. That's a lot of truths coming at them, right? All the difficult things they've heard, and now he's teaching these difficult things about the helper and the spirit of truth, and we're going to come and we're going to dwell with you. And Jesus says, don't worry, I've told you all these things while I'm with you, and I know they're difficult to swallow. Um, and they have been difficult, right? Thomas had a question. Philip had a question. Now Judas has a question. Like, we don't get this. So if you have a question, you, you can join the crowd. But he realizes they're going to need further instruction, and that's the point. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You're not going to get all this right now, disciples. I understand that, but trust me, the Holy Spirit, the guy I'm talking about, right? He's going to teach you all things. He's coming on 
in my name, which means on my behalf. Jesus came in the Father's name. The Spirit comes in the name of the Son. And the Spirit will teach you all things. And that's a primary role of the Spirit, to teach you truth. You have a resident truth teacher in you. Do you take advantage of that? (laughs) That's pretty amazing. A resident truth teacher. For the disciples, the Spirit is going to bring to the remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, that's, a, I think, a specific thing for the disciples. Jesus has been teaching these things. They're going to forget a lot of it, particularly when he's arrested and, and tried and, and murdered, right? They're going to forget these things. But the Spirit comes, and it will bring to them the remembrance of all these things. And I think it's primarily a promise of the di- divine inspiration they would need to remember his words and record them in written form, which we have today. That's the divine inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's the idea there. And the Holy Spirit inspired the very words of scripture because he's the teacher. And he would bring remembrance of those things. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What do we call our Bible? The sword of the what? Spirit. Yeah, exactly. So get this. You are armed with the truth through the Spirit, and you are accompanied by God through the Spirit. Do you need anything else? (laughs) We need nothing else. I'll answer that one for you. We don't. We need nothing else. You should be able to continue on in life in confidence, with courage, because of the comfort of those words. You're armed with the truth. You're accompanied by God. And that is what Jesus is doing. And that leads ultimately to peace. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, first here, we have peace with God. Because we know Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not an enemy of, of God the Father. You have peace with him. But in addition, Jesus leaves his peace, peace with us. We have his peace. And if we read the New Testament all through it, almost every New Testament epistle, you see this phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you read, you see that salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think the disciples got it later, right? That's the idea. They know his peace. I know Paul is not in this room, but he met Jesus. He knows his peace. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the source of peace, and it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit to impart that peace to believers. And it's not a peace that the world offers, right? Not as the world gives, he says. The peace the world offers, it's, it's temporary, right? It's momentary and fleeting, Or it's just blissfully ignorant about the wrath of God that's coming upon them, right? They don't know peace. But believers who have the indwelling Holy Spirit should know real peace because they have the peace with God and they have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 was read this morning for a purpose. We're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Have you ever wondered how the peace of God can guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus when he's not here? Oh, because he's in you. That's how. He'll guard your heart and your mind because he's in you. You have the peace of God. 
He guarantees it. Peace I give to you. My peace. My peace. And it's not the peace of the world. And it should result in a heart that's not troubled or afraid. Afraid of anything. Verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Jesus is wrapping up the teaching here. If the disciples had been more mature and had more understanding, they would be glad that Jesus is going away. Right? All of this should be really good news. If you really love me, you would be rejoiced that I'm going because this is amazing. I think Jesus is, is winding this up because he's transitioning from what the benefits are for his disciples to letting them see um, from his perspective the benefits that are coming to him. They, they don't, he doesn't want them to look at the cross as this bad thing. Remember, Jesus, you have to go back to where this started. Now the Son of Man is glorified. That's his perspective. He wants them to have his perspective. I'm going back to my Father in glory. You should be rejoicing with me because my Father is greater than I. Now, here's where some people go wrong. Jehovah Witnesses like to say, look at this verse. Oh, look, Jesus is a lesser God because he just said, my Father is greater than I. And I would say they obviously haven't read the whole Gospel of John because we've, you'd have a really hard um, time getting to that conclusion taking into account all the passages we've seen thus far in John that show, show that Jesus is equal with God. And most recently here in just in chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus laments to, to Philip, have I been with you so long and you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not trying to teach on the fact that he is this lesser being, uh, this created being. He isn't speaking of his nature He's speaking about his role. Did Jesus not humble himself and become something slightly less? Yeah, he became a man. Philippians 2, 5 to 7, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Yes, he came in the likeness of men. Ephesians 5, or sorry, John 5, 19, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. You guys remember that? He is speaking about the, the fact that he has subordinated himself to the will of the Father. All through John, right? I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm here to do the will of the Father. And what Jesus is looking forward to now is being vindicated by God, returning to his Father's presence to full glory. If you love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. I'm going back to my place of, of glory. I've accomplished my mission. That's what he's doing here. Verse 29. And now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Simply, this is all meant to help the disciples after he goes because he's prophesied it about uh, beforehand. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Remember that Satan had entered Judas just before he left the room? It said that Satan had entered Judas. So Satan is moving his forces against Jesus. And so Jesus's time is limited. The cross is, is hours away. And of course, the devil is not the true ruler of the world. God is. But he is the ruler of the evil world system that is in rebellion against God. That he rules, you better believe it. And the world follows his leadership in that. 
And so he's moving his forces against him. But, but Jesus says, Satan has nothing in me. It's a Hebrew idiom, meaning the devil has no hold on him. How can it? He can make no legal claim against Jesus. Jesus is not from this world, and he is without sin. What claim can Satan make against him? Similarly, Satan has no hold on you. Because as an adopted son of our Heavenly Father, you have a new citizenship. It's in heaven, right? You've been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You, you don't have this place, and you don't have the record of sin anymore. You have the righteousness of Christ. Incredible. Satan has no hold on you. So many Christians today live as if he does, live in fear, live shackled to fear. These disciples will fear. But when the Holy Spirit comes, that fear will go away. When you read Acts, you just see instant boldness, instantaneous. I look at the church today and I wonder, then what are we, what are we missing? <laughs> How are so many Christians full of fear, have troubled hearts, difficulty getting through life, making wrong decisions left and right. I think they fail to recognize the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan has written a book called The Forgotten God. It's all about the Holy Spirit. His point is a lot of the Christians have forgotten their God, forgotten the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, forgotten the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make to them. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not leaving you orphans. I'm going to come to you. And when I do, you're going to have um, truth revealed to you. And you're going to have strength because you know I'm with you. The ruler of this world has nothing in Christ. He has nothing on you either. Be encouraged by that. Verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Far from a defeat, uh, Jesus' death was the ultimate proof of his love for the Father, wasn't it? That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. The world's going to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I've been obedient to the end, right? I loved him to the very end, and he was obedient to the point of death. Arise, let us go from here, signals a transition. Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the upper room, and they're beginning to walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. But what Jesus has done, he's come full circle with his teaching here. Obedience to his commands brings the presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the union of the Trinity, the presence of God, the Father, and God the Son. And the Holy Spirit arms us with truth, and we can follow him in obedience, just as Jesus obediently followed his Father. Have you been operating with this understanding of the Spirit in your life? I think a lot of the manifestations of the Spirit that are seen in churches today would contradict the teaching of the Holy Spirit by Jesus. We should be looking for this, a Holy Spirit that makes us know that Jesus is with us, that reveals truth to us, that manifests the glory of Christ and not the glory of the Spirit or our own glory. And we'll get more into that when we get into chapter 16 as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the Spirit indwelling us. Lord, it's a truth, it's a fact that we can't deny just from the teaching we've seen today from Jesus that you abide with us always, that we should not fear, that our hearts should not be troubled, 
because of that truth. Lord, help us to see this truth in a new light. Perhaps, Lord, for some, it's because they're just not walking obediently, not living according to your word, not desiring to live for you. I don't know. It could be many things. But Lord, I pray that we would just run to you and recognize our need for you. I don't know how anyone in this life could continue on without you. I don't know how people do it. But we are not without you. You're with us. You promised not to leave us as orphans. So I pray we would hold on to these truths, that we'd be comforted, that we'd be encouraged, we would proceed boldly, Lord, because you're with us. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word today. May it glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.